The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Verse 16, Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. The sermon title of the day that I wrote there is Paul on Baptism, or what Paul has to say and think and teach about baptism comes right from the text. If you'll note where I started reading in verse 13, the word baptize is in every one of those verses. The word baptized, Paul uses it in verse 13. He uses it in verse 14. He uses it in verse 15. Again, in 16 and 17. So that is his theme here, baptism. But he's not just talking about uh, baptism out of context. He's talking about baptism in light of the fact that it's controversial in the Corinthian church. Uh, he's really dealing with an issue, issue beyond baptism. He's not really dealing with baptism as much as the problem underneath the baptism, and that is division in the church. Uh, verse 10, he gets right to the point of what the problem was in the church. I've heard that there are divisions in the church. There are schisms in the church. There's fighting in the church. There's whining in the church. There's arguing in the church. There's bickering in the church. There's Christian at each other's Christian's throats in the church. This should not be. That's what a schism is. Stop. And he, he addresses the division in the church for four solid chapters. People who are Christians who have been saved by the grace of God have been saved for healing. They have been saved for unity. They have been saved for the purpose of being part of a greater whole. And division is absolutely categorically the opposite of that and counterproductive to unity in the church. And so Paul is attacking the division in their church. Verse 10, there are schisms in the church. You are not of the same mind. You are not thinking the same way. You're not rendering the same judgments when you should be. Verse 11, there's quarreling going on. This schismatic attitude and schismatic, divisive, factious heart you have is actually manifesting itself visibly, audibly, noticeably through quarrels and bickering and whining. Those are the words that he uses. It's turning into verbal division. It starts, and that's how division always goes. It starts with a thought. It starts with a bad attitude. It starts with some conspiracy theory. It starts with suspicion. It starts with faithlessness in prayer. It starts with not thinking the right thing about another thing. It starts with violating 1 Corinthians 13, where it said, love hopes all things, believes all things, assumes the best about another believer. So division, outwardly manifest, always starts in the mind. It starts emotionally thinking, not thinking on truth. It starts with, like I said, suspicion. Then it turns into an attitude. And then it is nurtured and harbored in the heart and in the mind and if you don't deal with it eventually it will become manifest in the words of James chapter 1 where that sin literally gives birth and then it must issue forth and in the case of the Corinthians it issued forth in outward division cliques factions bickering arguing in the church and it became so noticeable that Paul's got several uh, waves of information coming his way that wow the Corinthian church they're fractured uh, through division and bad attitudes. And so that is the context here that Paul is addressing. He is dealing with bad attitudes that are divisive and destructive to the unity of the body of Christ. And then he jumps in from this theme of division where he said, here's how it's being manifest. We've got factions and people literally saying, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Peter or Cephas. I am of Christ. And so one manifestation of the division was people were taking sides and aligning themselves and giving loyalty to a human level, giving allegiance to a human that that human doesn't deserve, giving loyalty and adoration and awe to a human that only God and Jesus deserve. That was the problem. It's uh, elevating the virtues of humanity beyond what is legitimate, and it's having a low and wrong view of Christ and God. So their loyalties were misplaced. And they are in awe of human beings, fallen sinful human beings, illegitimately so. And pitting these uh, human beings against each other. Pitting Paul against Apollos, pitting Apollos against Peter. And so that's what he's addressing. That's its manifestation and he wants to put it to a stop. And one of the ways, apparently, that this was being manifest or a reason of these 
personality cults that we talked about last week was the issue of baptism, the rite of baptism or the ordinance of baptism. So baptism was a gift from God or Jesus to his church. And God intended baptism to be a good thing, to be a blessed thing, to be a public testimony, to be a living metaphor of an inner spiritual reality. So baptism was intended by God, given to the church. The church was to be a steward of the ordinance of baptism. And as sinful people so frequently do, they take a gift from God and they twist it and they distort it and they misuse it and turn it into a divisive tool. That has been true all throughout history. That's what human, sinful humans do, don't they? We take a blessing from God and we distort it or misuse it. Then it becomes destructive. I think if, if you remember in the Old Testament where they're out in the desert with maybe almost two million Jews and Moses is leading the pack and they're wandering around for 40 years and at one point uh, they needed some healing and so God enables Moses to make this bronze-like stick of a standard that he holds up in the air and it's made out of bronze and there's actually a snake made out of bronze or whatever it is and he puts it on the standard and he holds it up in the air and anybody that looks at the bronze snake instantaneously would be healed by God. Well, the actual physical bronze snake that was made by a human wasn't the agent of healing. It was God who healed. And God healed in response to faith. God healed in response to anybody that would believe God at His Word. Here's, it was a miracle. It was impossible. But God does miracles. And so God said, you look at this snake and you will be healed. And so many people looked and they got healed. And there were probably some people who didn't believe it or didn't look or didn't look in faith or whatever, maybe didn't get healed. But many people believed and they looked and they got healed. And there were many witnesses watching saying, wow, that was amazing. There's another amazing miracle that God did through Moses. And some people had the wrong thinking that all the power of healing was actually in the physical bronze snake. And so somebody got a hold of that thing and they turned it into an idol and a treasure. And after a while, they, be, they began to worship that. And the Old Testament talks about that. So here's what God designed this thing to be a gift and sinful humans distort the gift and misuse it. And humans still do that. Humans will always, sinful humans will always do that. That's what Romans chapter 1 is about where God created all things for us to enjoy. And in Romans chapter 1 it says that sinful humans take the creation, things that God has created, like animals. Animals were given as a gift to human beings to bless human beings as pets, as domestic, domestic working beasts to help us with travel, to help us with clothing, to eat, to use for sacrifices in the Old Testament. So animals were given to humanity as a gift and then along comes sinful man and he takes these animals and turns them into gods and prays to them. And so that human beings are literally worshiping the creation rather than the creator. That's what humans, sinful humans do. And no exception in the church. Sinful human beings in the Corinthian church have taken a blessed gift from God, the ordinance of baptism, and have turned it on its ear, have misinterpreted it, misused it, and as a result are even using it to create factions in the church by these false allegiances and this cult of personality. And so that's where we are looking at verse the end of verse 13 to verse 17. Paul's addressing these factions literally in the church. And so there was a faction. It was the Paul faction. And so apparently there were some people in the church at Corinth that had an allegiance to the Apostle Paul over against those who had an allegiance to Apollos. And they probably sat on different sides of the church on Sunday morning. There was the Paul pews and the Apollos pews. And they were having division with one another. They couldn't get along. And so Paul's addressing this very specifically. Well, the question is, how did this... Paul faction develop anyway. How did this Apollos group get started? Where did this Cephas-Peter group come from? How did they arise? Uh, the indication here from the text before us is that it, they used the ordinance of baptism as what helped create these cliques. That's clearly the implication from our text. And so uh, this morning I just broke the, the verses down from 14 to 17 into three principles just to kind of summarize the overarching truth of these verses, and then a follow-up conclusion, point number four. We'll talk about that in a second. So Paul is talking about baptism. 
what it really is, what it's intended for, and, and how the Corinthians were abusing it. And there's some practical lessons that we can take away. So let's go ahead and look at point number one that Paul emphasizes, verses 14 and 15. And point number one I put there is the rule. Paul's rule or standard practice regarding baptism. As an apostle, the apostle Paul. The rule for the apostle Paul was that he did not baptize. He says it very clearly. Uh, Starting at the end of verse 13, he says, Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? It's a rhetorical question. You were not, when you got baptized, if you got baptized, you were not baptized in the name of Paul. Verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you. So that was a standard practice. Paul's standard practice was that he didn't baptize anybody. That was not in his job description, technically speaking, as an apostle, as a sent one, as a preacher of the gospel. Here's a quiz question. Uh, Just think about it in your own mind. Don't say it out loud. It would have been interesting had had you write it on a piece of paper and we we turned in all the answers because I guarantee we'd get different answers. Here's the question. Who should perform baptisms today? Don't answer that out loud. Just think about it for a second. Who should perform baptisms today? So it is clear that in Corinth, they had division and controversy and infighting among Christians regarding the ordinance of baptism. Aren't you glad that doesn't happen today in our church? That around the Christian world and Christian history, we don't have people arguing about the meaning of baptism anymore. I'm, I'm being facetious because we do all throughout. Church history is rife with Christians fighting, bickering, and even divisions and even creating denominations over differences about baptism. It's been true all throughout church history. I think of the days of John Calvin in the early 1600s and the days of Martin Luther in the late 1500s. Martin Luther and John Calvin were born and raised Roman Catholics in Roman Catholic families and studied for the Catholic priesthood. And both of those men, Martin Luther and John Calvin, through the study of the Scripture, became illuminated, enlightened, and liberated from Roman Catholic dogma and theology. And they got born again. They got saved primarily through reading the Scriptures. And so they began to, little by little, so they left Roman Catholicism. They tried to reform Roman Catholicism. That didn't work. So they left Roman Catholicism, wanted to just get back to the Bible and get away from all this man-made tradition. Let's just do what the Bible says. And they did that in almost every area of Roman Catholicism. The one area where... Neither of them abandoned Roman, the Roman Catholic view was in the area of baptism. So uh, Luther and Calvin held on to Roman Catholic baptism at the time, which was infant baptism and still is to this day. And in the Roman Catholic Church, you are baptized when you're eight days old, if you're a good Catholic, and all that, and it's a sprinkling on the forehead by the priest, just a little ointment on the forehead. And their theology teaches that all that does is it eradicates original sin that came from Adam, but it doesn't account for any other sin in your life. And I was baptized as an eight-day your old Roman Catholic, where supposedly um, Adam's sin was being eradicated from my life through that practice. Uh, so there's an example where in church history, uh, what erupted was a huge controversy regarding the nature of baptism, and Martin Luther and John Calvin were at the forefront of it, because then there were other followers of John Calvin and Martin Luther who came along and said, hey, let's get back to the Bible. If we're going to get back to the Bible, let's get back to the Bible in every area, including baptism. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say that infants should be baptized. The pattern always is that it's a believer, somebody who has heard the gospel, they understood it, and after they believed the gospel, then they got baptized. And also, every example in the New Testament is there's no sprinkling on the forehead. It was, it was dunking because that's what the word baptism or baptizo means. It means to dunk, to immerse, and that's exactly how Jesus got baptized by John the Baptist. Uh, and that's how Jesus' Jesus's apostles baptized others. And so a huge controversy in the church arose, and then this whole denomination started called the Anabaptists. Uh, those who baptized again, Anna is the word for doing it again. So uh, there was a group of Christians who were baptizing people later on after they got saved, even though they got baptized as eight-day-old infants or week-old infants because they believed you don't get baptized till after you understand the gospel, believe and get saved. Then you need to be baptized. So they were rebaptizing people. And so they got they were called the rebaptizers. 
Kind of like me, I got rebaptized. I was baptized, apparently, at least I was told when I was about eight days old. I don't remember that day. Um, but I was baptized when I was eight days old. But then later on, somebody told me the gospel. I believed it at age 19 and I got saved. And then uh, thereafter, I got baptized after getting saved when I understood the message, getting immersed in water like baptizo means. So I got baptized again. So historically, I would have been an Anabaptist, a rebaptized one. So that's an, an entire denomination. That's where the Baptists came from. That was kind of one of their main distinctives. We are Baptists. They have a specific view regarding believer's baptism, not infant baptism. Uh, and there are other denominations we have that have their entire... Uh, the doctrine of baptism is very important and at the forefront and central to everything they believe. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not so good. Entire, entire denominations. I think of the Church of Christ. The Church of Christ. Because you need to be discerning. The Church of Christ. The Boston Church of Christ. The LA Church of Christ. And just your local Church of Christ uh, believes that water baptism somehow does something very special, spiritual, and mystical, even bringing you into the covenant of God in a unique way beyond the gospel, and sometimes even efficacious for forgiving sin. And we would say, no, only Jesus' death is sufficient for that. So even today we have entire denominations that make their distinctions from one another by their view of baptism, still uh, Presbyterian churches, covenant theology churches, same thing. They stand for something very specific regarding baptism. So... Uh, we have a problem with understanding baptism in the church today, and it divides. You can order a book on Amazon called Four Views of Baptism. I've read it. It's for professing believers, supposedly using the Bible to argue their case for, get this, the biblical position for baptism. Now, how can you have four drastically different views, and they're all right, or they're all the biblical view? Well, you can't. Uh, this is not some tangential, insignificant doctrine. This is one of the two ordinances that Jesus Christ gave to the church that he commanded us to do. We are obligated. Baptism is not an option. So I think there's clear teaching from Scripture, but the point that there's a book by four professing believers using the Bible saying four views on baptism tells you that this problem, understanding baptism, is current for us today as a church. So let's look to Paul and see some of his guiding principles maybe to help us gauge our thinking on what can be a very actually controversial topic among believers. Looking at verse 14 and 15 in a little more detail, where the rule for Paul is that he says in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you. And Paul's going to go on to say that he was not called to baptize. So going back to that question, who is supposed to be performing baptisms? If you said the pastor that was kind of a half-right, half-wrong answer. Because a pastor can do baptisms, absolutely. Um, as a matter of fact, let's go to Matthew 28, Jesus' great commission. This was his last charge on earth before he ascended back into heaven. So he gathers the 11 apostles or disciples Probably said a lot of other things to them, but here's what he left us in Scripture, verses 19 and 20, called the Great Commission. That's really delegated and given to the church, not just the apostles. And historically, on the Great Commission, every book I've ever read, every sermon I've ever heard, everything I've ever heard any Christian or preacher talk about it, the implication is that who is responsible for obeying and fulfilling and implementing the Great Commission? The answer is always all Christians. Who's supposed to fulfill the Great Commission? The church and all believers are obligated to do. So what is the Great Commission? Look at verse 19 of Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Okay, if you read verses 19 and 20 in your English Bible, and I ask you what's the main verb, some of you might say go, and then I would say no, that is not correct. In the Greek text, the main verb is make disciples. That's the driving verb. What is the command in this passage? Jesus said, make disciples. The word go is a participle that tells us how to make disciples. So in 19 and 20, you've got three participles. Go, make disciples by going. Make disciples by baptizing. Make disciples by teaching. That's discipleship. 
So the main verb is make disciples. Going is evangelism. Go and while you're going and you're sharing the gospel and planting the seed of the gospel wherever you go, that's, it starts there. People have got to hear. How shall they be saved if they don't hear the message? So it starts with going, planting seeds. Inevitably, somebody's going to hear and get saved. And when they do, you go to the next step. After they get saved, what do you do? You baptize them. That's the pattern of the book of Acts. That's the command of Jesus. So you go, you plant the word, you preach, you give the gospel. Whenever somebody believes, you baptize them. And then after they get baptized, they're not done. They're not the finished product. Okay, I got baptized. I'm done. Ready to go to heaven. Or I got baptized. I'm like Jesus. No, you're not. Neither am I. That's why Jesus gives the third participle in verse 20. Teaching them everything that I have commanded all the days of their life or until Jesus comes again. And that takes a lifetime and more. That's the discipleship process and sanctification. And it's continual. And that's the teaching ministry of the church. And that's all a part of discipleship. So when I ask you, who is responsible for fulfilling the Great Commission? 100% of the time, at least people I've talked to, they say, well, the church are all believers. And part of the Great Commission is making disciples. Well, who should be making disciples? Well, all believers. Well, how do you make disciples? Well, by going, by evangelizing. Well, who should be evangelizing? Well, everybody, all believers. Well, there's three components to making disciples. It's going or evangelizing, it's baptizing, and it's teaching. So, who should be making disciples? Everybody. All believers. Everybody should be evangelizing. But it's kind of interesting when we get to the second component of discipleship making, baptizing. Some believers think, and I've actually worked with colleagues and pastored with fellow folks who would say, no, the only people that can do baptisms are pastors. This is a true story. And the only place you can get baptized is in a church on Sunday morning. I am not kidding. I'm like, whoa. That seems like an extreme view. I got some questions if that's your view. Question number one. When in the New Testament did anybody ever get baptized in a church building that you're aware of? Answer, never. Can you get baptized in a church building? Yes, if there's water. The answer, where should people get baptized? In the water. Not in a church building. I don't care where the water is. So I actually had, not debates, friendly discussions with fellow pastors about this when we're considering, can we baptize this person at a lake at a youth camp? I'm saying, yeah, bring it on. Is there water? No, it must be in the confined sanctuary of our local church building under the purview of the leadership and the elders. Wow. Sounds spiritual, but I don't see that in the Bible. Uh, second question. Uh, who's supposed to fulfill the Great Commission? Well, everybody. Well, isn't baptizing part of the Great Commission? Yes. So then maybe more than just pastors can actually baptize other believers. Never thought of that. Well, it's right there. So that's what I believe. And then you got 1 Corinthians 1 where Paul is saying, I was not called to baptize, and I thank God I didn't baptize anybody. It's almost like Paul is saying, I don't want anything to do with baptism. It's not in my job description. It's also like Paul is saying, it doesn't matter who baptizes you. That's the point. It doesn't matter who baptizes you as long as they're a believer because what does matter in baptism, it's baptism into the name of. That's what is important. Because two times in 1 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul uses that phrase, in the name of. Did you get baptized in my name? Are you going to get baptized in the name of Paul? Paul is, I believe, referring to Matthew 28, 19 and 20 where Jesus said, baptize them, and he uses the exact Greek phrase. Into the name of. And it is the triune God of the universe. That's who we get baptized into. When we dunk somebody, the baptizer is absolutely irrelevant. It's the meaning of the baptism. They're getting baptized into the identity of the God who saved them. God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And in Matthew 28, it says, into the name of, the singular name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God's name is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that's who, whenever we baptize somebody, even if we baptize them into the name of Jesus, as Peter said in Acts chapter 10, Peter ordered that the new believers get baptized in the name of Jesus. He didn't say, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He said, in the name of Jesus. Why? That was sufficient because Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Everything I do honors the Father. The same thing of the Holy Spirit. If you're doing it in the name of Jesus Christ, that means the triune God. And so it's baptism into the identity of the triune God, not 
into Paul or who baptized you. And so apparently what happened in Corinth probably is there were some people at Corinth when Paul came. Go ahead and look at uh, Acts 18 real quick if you have your Bible open. When Paul came into town, he's preaching the gospel in the synagogue. He starts there. Some believe, some resist. Uh, then he moves next door into a house and he keeps preaching. He's there for a year and a half. And while he's uh, preaching the gospel, especially early on when Paul first got there, he did do some of the baptizing. When there weren't any disciples, he did some of the baptizing. He did have a couple of associates with him that came along. He had Aquila and Priscilla. Maybe they did some of the baptizing. And then uh, Timothy came a little later. And probably Timothy did some baptizing for Paul. But early on, maybe when he was by himself, Paul baptized just a few because there was no other believer to baptize of those who got saved. So if you look at Acts 18, uh, Paul rolls into town in Corinth preaching the gospel, building the church. Uh, and Crispus, oh, and he's in the synagogue, and then he gets chased out of the synagogue. Uh, then he goes next door to a house by the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. So Paul's preaching, and then all of a sudden this guy who's an unbelieving Jew, he believes and gets saved. And then he says, hey, Paul, why don't you come to my house? It's safer. And your headquarters of operation can be there. So Paul moves to the house of Crispus. Middle of verse 8, it says, And many, get that, many of the Corinthians, when they heard the gospel, were believing, and get this, were being baptized. And keep in mind that Paul's not baptizing all of them. He only baptized a few. And then he kind of passed the baton on. Okay, guys, now you guys can start baptizing. You're Christians. You can fulfill the Great Commission. It's the ministry of the church. So he baptized only a few. But many were being baptized in Corinth. So going back to uh, 1 Corinthians, and that, Paul, uh, that main point there, point number one, that the rule for the Apostle Paul was that he did not baptize. He was not called to baptize his call as an apostle was to preach the gospel. By the way, there was a baptism of Jesus. There was a baptism of John in the gospels. But John chapter 4 says that even though there was a baptism in the name of Jesus, Jesus never baptized anybody. He delegated that to the apostles. And so Paul pretty much is following suit. He was not called to baptize. And he, he can't even remember when he did it. did it very rarely. What was going on there is Paul comes into town. They hear the gospel, and Paul baptized some of these folks. And some of these people who were baptized the Apostle Paul, they're thinking, wow, I got baptized by the Apostle Paul. Who did you get baptized by? Oh, I got baptized by uh, Larry. <laughs> Who's Larry? What insignificant guy is Larry? I was baptized by the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, the Apostle that wrote 13 epistles. And so they're finding their identity in a man. You know what? That goes on today. It's just human nature. It's a temptation. I was baptized by past world-famous pastor so-and-so or world-famous megachurch leader evangelist pastor so-and-so. If I told you who baptized me, you'd say, who's that? Some insignificant Christian that was faithful to the duty of baptizing me. Praise God. So that, that's what Paul is combating. But there were some people that got baptized by Paul and then all of a sudden they're turning that into a cult. We got baptized by Paul. Paul left after a year and a half. And we know that Apollos, according to the book of Acts, came in after Paul. And Apollos had a teaching and preaching ministry. He was mighty in the scriptures. There were people that believed under the name of Apollos. And apparently Apollos baptized some people. And so then some of these people turned that into a cult. Well, I was baptized by Apollos. He's more eloquent than your Paul. Hence, the cult of Apollos. And then some of these people got baptized by Peter, apparently. Peter was the main man. He'd been around the longest. He walked and talked with Jesus for three plus years. And whether they were traveling to Palestine and back or whether Peter actually had a short-term ministry in Corinth visiting, we don't know. But the point is that probably some of them actually got baptized by Peter himself, the rock. And the people that got baptized, baptized by him put their identity in that, made it more than it was worth they're thinking more about Peter than in the name of Jesus Christ, the triune God who died for my sins. They're turning Peter into significance when he's absolutely insignificant. The baptizer means nothing in the big picture of things. And so that's how these cliques and cults were forming over around a gift from God, the ordinance of baptism. And Paul just cuts to the chase of it. You know what? You guys are, have a wrong view of baptism. You're overinflating the baptizer it's all about the name into which you were baptized. You were baptized into the name of Jesus Christ, your Savior. That's what matters. 
So the rule for Paul was that he didn't baptize. So let's go on to verse 16 after the rule. Number two, Paul on baptism, the rule is that he did not baptize, but there was an exception and he mentions it here. The exception was that he baptized only a few. Only a few. So after saying, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. And these, both of these men are mentioned in the scripture. Uh, Crispus is mentioned in Acts 18.8. We just read that. Gaius is mentioned in uh, Romans 16. Gaius apparently was uh, somebody who hosted Paul when Paul was traveling. And apparently he had a home big enough to accommodate a lot of Christians. And Paul says, yeah, I do remember baptizing Gaius. Um, and another fellow, Stephanus. But it's, it's kind of interesting the way Paul mentioned it. Look at verse 16. I didn't baptize anybody except for Crispus and Gaius, verse 15. And I, the, and I purposely chose not to baptize people on a regular basis, verse 15, in order that, for the purpose of, because I didn't want the following to happen. That's literally what it means. I don't want to be known as a baptizer. Because if I did that, it looked like I'm building up my own little church and my own little following and my own little cult. And I didn't want to do that. Verse 15, in order that no one should say that they were baptized into my name, into my identity, into an allegiance to me. It's in the name of Jesus you get baptized, not Paul. So he's emphatic in trying to make that point. Then verse 16, there's another exception. He says, now I, now I did, it's kind of like he's Paul's dictating this letter and whoever's writing it down for him, his amanuensis or whoever it is, secretary, writing this down to Paul. Oh wait, okay, I baptized more than... Crispus and Gaius. Yeah, there was that guy, Stephanos. That's true. But again, the point is, it was a minority. Very, very few people. This was not Paul's practice to baptize people. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanos. Beyond that, I don't even know whether I baptized anybody. I don't even remember. And that's how insignificant it is for Paul regarding who the baptizer is. So even here at our church, it's, I must be baptized by the senior pastor, the lead pastor, the paid pastor, or only Pastor Cliff. That's the wrong view of baptism. What you should be thinking is, I want to be baptized into the name of Jesus who saved me in obedience to Him, because that's what He demands of new believers that they get baptized. So, Paul's being emphatic here. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't even remember anybody at all that I baptized. It's just a few. That is the exception. So the rule, Paul didn't baptize. The exception, yeah, there were a few. And it was probably for pragmatic and practical reasons, like I mentioned with Crispus, probably one of the first people to get saved because he was preaching in the synagogue. Beyond that, he delegated it to other believers. So who is qualified to baptize? Can any Christian baptize? Well, we like to say we believe in the priesthood of all believers. In the Old Testament, priests were a minority. Priests were few. Priests were qualified. Priests were only men. Priests were only from the Levitical line. Priests had to be a certain age. And even among the priests, there were certain priests that could only do certain things. There was the high priest with privileged duties. So the priestly ministry was very selective, very detailed, very prescribed. And then in the New Testament, who's a priest? Every believer. Isn't that amazing? The priesthood of the believers. So I think part of the privilege of the priesthood of believers is that believers can baptize other believers. Where do you baptize other believers? In water. How do you do it? You dunk them, because that's what baptizo means. Dunk. So it's really not that complicated. We have complicated it, and that's what we do as sinful fallen people. We complicate things, don't we? Make it difficult. So he didn't baptize. There was an exception, but what's the priority? Uh, and that's his final point here, and that's point number three. What was Paul's Priority, if God didn't call him to baptize. You mean as a pastor, elder, preacher, apostle, evangelist, teacher, prophet, baptizing was not really in Paul's job description. Which as a pastor leads me to ask the question which I've always asked is, who's qualified to do a wedding? Well, pastors, of course from a church point of view, but it's kind of interesting. Search the Scriptures. You don't ever see an elder, pastor, bishop, overseer performing a, a wedding in the New Testament, nor are they ever commanded to do so. Nor is it in the Old Testament. So why do pastors do weddings? Is it wrong for pastors to do weddings? No. I just think it has to be a God-ordained and legally recognized authority 
And it just so happens the laws of the land allow a pastor or minister to have such universally recognized authority. So it is okay for pastors and legitimate for them to do weddings, but it's just kind of interesting that it's never a job description in the New Testament for pastors. So let's look at this third point. Well, what was Paul's priority? Very simple. Priority is preaching the gospel. It's verse 16 and 17. Now I did not baptize also the... Oh, wait. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize. There it is. And the word send is related to the word apostle. Jesus Christ made me and called me to be an apostle, not for the purpose of baptism. Baptism is not the priority. Paul is not denigrating baptism. He's putting baptism in its proper place because... Uh, unfortunately, people have elevated baptism beyond its significance and meaning to the point of saying you have to get baptized in order to be saved. You have to get baptized in order to get sins forgiven. You have to be baptized to be right with God. That's wrong. That is inappropriate. And Paul's lowering baptism down in its proper place. It is secondary. It is submissive. It is subordinate to the gospel and salvation. It has its place but it is secondary to the gospel. It flows from the gospel. It finds its meaning. It derives its meaning flowing from the gospel. So we need to view baptism in the proper order. And so Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize. That is not my calling. I have a higher calling. What is that? But to preach the gospel. The word for preach, there's a lot of different words for preach and proclaim in the New Testament, Greek words. This one is very specific, and it's the word where we get evangelism. Uh, in other words, uh, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but he, he called me to evangelize the gospel. He called me to spread the good news. He called me to be a good newser. It's one verb. To be a proclaimer of good news. And that's what evangelism means, literally. It's good news. Uh, the word gospel means good news. And so Paul was called to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. And so that's Paul's priority. He stays focused. He does not want to be derailed. He's going to have people, you know, pulling on his coattails and on his collar, asking him to do other things. They're going to ask him to be a social coordinator or organizing certain events or can you get the, the, the pantry going for food to give out to the homeless and blah, blah. I mean, there's a zillion good things that people could have been asking Paul to do, but that was not his calling. His calling was to preach the gospel. And he stayed focused and true to that because it was the highest priority. It was the highest calling for many reasons. And by the way, when Paul says, uh, God called me to preach, he uses words always that talk about verbally speaking. It didn't, in other words, Paul wasn't called to live the gospel. Yeah, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to live like a Christian and people will see the gospel of my life and then get saved through my actions. No, that ain't going to happen. Romans chapter 10 is clear. How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they hear without a verbalizer of the content of the gospel? You can't just be a do-gooder and never say anything and think that people are going to look at you, oh, you're a nice person, and then get saved. That, it doesn't work that way. It has to be proclaimed. The gospel has to be articulated. It is a specific message with definitive, detailed, inspiring content. So it's not just a good life on the outside because there's plenty of people in the world that aren't saved that on the outside they live a good life. They look like they are ethical. I know people personally that are very nice people, very moral, very friendly, friendlier than a lot of Christians I know. Legitimate, bona fide, sincere do-gooders. Because... A lot of that has to do with common grace, that every human being is made in God's image. God is a good God. He's a gracious God. He's a merciful God. And some of the attributes and characteristics of God are given to his creation, humanity. And so if you actually know an unbeliever who's actually a nice person, legitimately so, it's because they were made in God's image and there's the doctrine of common grace. Yes, I believe you. They are a nice person. But they are not saved. And you can't get saved unless you hear the content, the preaching of the gospel. So we don't live the gospel. We live in accordance to the gospel. We obey the truths of the gospel, but we don't live the gospel that people might say. We must preach the gospel so people might be saved. And that's why Paul says, I came preaching and teaching. Uh, I think of Mark chapter 3, verse 14, where Jesus, he had all these disciples and he prayed all night long and then he chose 12 out of there. And, and when he gave them their charge, the main charge that he gave them was go and preach. Go and preach the good news. You are preachers. And Paul has said that a couple of times in uh, the 
pastoral epistles, he identifies himself as a preacher. I am a preacher and a teacher. And so that was the priority, preaching of the gospel. That's what Jesus was. Jesus was not primarily a healer. Did Jesus heal? Yes. Was he called to be a healer? No. That was not his main responsibility. That isn't why he came into the world to set people free. Isaiah 61 says it best, predicting why the Messiah would come and what he'd do and what his priorities would be. And in the first three verses there, all the main verbs have to do with preaching the good news. Yes, he would heal people. He would open the eyes of the blind, but that was to validate that he was, in fact, the Messiah who would save people by virtue of the content of the preached message about himself, his perfect life, his death and resurrection on behalf of sinners. So Jesus came primarily to preach and teach the gospel, not to be a good, a, a, simply a do-gooder. And that's why many times in the gospels, Jesus healed somebody and he'd say, don't go telling anybody. He'd heal somebody and say, shh, don't go. And you kind of pause like, why did, why is Jesus Telling them not to tell anybody. I mean, you'd think you'd want to celebrate. Yippee! And I think because his main job was to come and die as the Savior of the world. He hadn't died as the substitute of sin yet. His mission hadn't been fulfilled. All these miracles were leading up to that. And so he didn't want people to think that, oh, I got healed by Jesus, I have arrived. No, you haven't. Because you could have been healed by Jesus and still be lost and dead in your sin. Because Jesus didn't come just to heal people. He came physically, he came to die on the cross and rise again from the dead to conquer sin and death on behalf of sinners. And healings were a mark proving he indeed was the Savior. So Paul came to preach. So today, I've mentioned this before, it is there's a a thread out there in the evangelical world where people are saying, uh, we are the gospel. Christians are the gospel. We need to be the gospel. We are, and I'm like, no, we are not the gospel. Actually, watch me long enough, close enough, I'm bad news. I am not good news. Ain't nobody getting saved watching my life replica, or trying to model after my life. There's only one good news. It is Jesus Christ. His life is perfect. As a matter of fact, unbelievers will use your hypocritical, messed up life as an excuse not to believe the gospel. I remember that when I was in college. Me and my roommate, we were saved and we had a good friend and we were working on him and evangelizing him and pulverizing him with the gospel. And we'd go play basketball and the four of us and we're playing basketball and me and my good buddy who were Christians, we'd get into a game and it'd get all tense and we'd start fighting and arguing about the score and the foul. And then afterwards, we're walking back to the dorm and the unbeliever among us they say, I'm not believing your Christianity. You guys fight and argue. That's hypocritical. And I, we quickly discern, oh, he's using that as an excuse. So we had to agree with him. Yes, we are hypocritical. Yes, we are sinful. Ooh, don't look to us about Christianity. Look to only one. It is Jesus. He never sinned. He is perfect. He is the God man. He is the good news. We are bad news. We are not the gospel. And only the gospel can save you. So we preach the gospel. Speaking of preaching, oh, by the way, Paul says, I came, I've been called to preach the gospel. By the way, he's telling these Greek Corinthians, and when I came to preach, I, it wasn't in cleverness of speech. It wasn't all about rhetoric. This is very specific terminology Paul is using with the Corinthians that they are familiar with, that they were raised in, in that culture. They were raised and trained in rhetoric. What is that? That's all about delivery and methodology and appearance and vocabulary and swaying people and stirring the emotions and moving them to actions strictly on the surface. It wasn't about content. The rhetoric and literally human wisdom is what they used. And Paul says, when I came preaching, I didn't do that. I wasn't clever. It wasn't all flowered up. It wasn't candy-coated. It was actually pretty simple. It's a pretty simple message. The gospel, the good news. It is that you are, God created you. He made you in His image. And then because of Adam and Eve, humanity fell into sin. God cursed the human race. Every human born into this world is born as a sinner, separated from God, a child of wrath, in need of God's grace. And God so loved the world, He loved His creation, even though we're sinners, that He came down to this world in the form of a human being. His name was Jesus. He lived this life for 30 years, 33 years, perfectly, willingly went and got executed as a criminal on a cross to be punished 
as a substitute for sinful people who deserve to be punished by Almighty God, but instead Jesus absorbed the wrath of God the Father as the substitute for sinners. Then Jesus was buried. Three days later, He rose Himself from the dead and the Father and the Spirit raised Him from the dead. And He attained a glorified resurrection body and then 40 days later He ascended back into heaven And to this day, he's calling sinners all over the world with the same gospel message, wooing sinners to himself, calling them to repent and believe in him and his substitutionary sacrifice. And they don't have to do anything in terms of works. All they have to do is believe. That's it. It is by faith. It is by God's grace through faith in the message that Jesus delivered and in and faith in the person that Jesus is. That is the good news. That is the gospel. That's what needs to be preached. It is very simple and many Greeks and Corinthians who heard this message, they thought it was idiocy, it was moronic, it was foolishness. This is absurd. Seriously? You mean to tell me I believe in some crucified Jew? And I can live for eternity? That is absurd. That's ridiculous. That is not logical. That is not what Aristotle told me. And they literally despised it as foolishness. But it's the truth. And so that's why many times unbelievers look down their nose at Christians and say, what you believe is absolute foolishness. And Paul realizes, yeah, that's the way it's perceived without the grace of God and the intervention of the Holy Spirit. So we preach the gospel, the good news, not in cleverness of speech, but just simply as God gave it. There's no prerequisites for the gospel. You just preach the gospel, you give it, you pray, and see God do His work in order that the cross of Christ should not be made void. In other words, don't let human ingenuity and human flowering and human candy coating smother the clear, simple message of Jesus Christ that saves. By the way, the only thing that saves, the only thing that changes the human heart is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul said in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. There is no other power There is no other power that saves souls. There is no other power that conquers sin. There is no other power that delivers from eternal death and hell. It is simply the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel. When you, if you want to become a member at GBF and join this church, there's one question you got to know and you got to answer. And that is, where is the gospel defined in the New Testament explicitly? And the answer is 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul said, this is the gospel. That Jesus Christ died for sins and that He was buried according to the Scriptures and that He was raised again according to the Scriptures. And that you believe that message by faith and if you do, you are saved and if you do, it is by which you stand and if you truly believe, you will receive resurrection and eternal life. The Gospel message, the only thing that can save. With that, let's go on to point number four just by way of some reminders on baptism. I'm going to go kind of fast. Um, but this, these are just reminders on the doctrine of baptism. Some pulled out of this text. Some we just need to hear that are in the Bible. Because there's confusion about baptism. First, what baptism is not. Baptism is not a covenant. That's really important. Baptism is not a covenant. It is not the sign of a covenant, the mark of a covenant. Jesus was clear at the Last Supper. This is my blood of the new covenant. What is the sign of the covenant? It is the blood of Jesus Christ. It is not baptism. Some people think it is. That's not in the Bible. Uh, Baptism does not save. Baptism does not earn any forgiveness. Baptism is not efficacious. Baptism doesn't wash away any of your sins. Baptism will not have God love you more. Here's an important one. Baptism is not part of the gospel. That's what it's not. Uh, These are truths gleaned primarily from the book of Acts and other passages on baptism. In the New Testament, people get baptized after believing the gospel. They believed, then they get baptized. If you're an eight-day-old infant, you can't believe you haven't believed. The pattern in the New Testament clearly is you get baptized after you believe. Uh, The pattern also in the book of Acts is you get baptized immediately after believing. Acts chapter 16, verse 33. uh, Acts chapter 10, at the end of that chapter, they believed and they got baptized the same day. Acts 16 uh, says they got baptized the same hour. They heard the gospel. They believed. They got baptized the same hour. In other words, there wasn't a required uh, six-week baptism class where you're going to be 
grilled and make sure you stop smoking cigarettes before you get dunked and every other bad habit you have. Because I've literally have chased some Christians down, not at this church, but other churches I'm thinking of, where so you're a believer? Yeah. When did you get saved? Oh, 15 years ago. Well, have you been baptized? No. Well, why not? Well, I'm not good enough yet. Brother, you ain't never going to be good enough. None of us are. you got to just get baptized. If you're a Christian, you believe you get baptized. There's one prerequisite. It's believing the gospel. Well, how do you know that they're truly saved? Somebody asked me that about 10 days ago. How do you know if the baptismal candidate is truly saved? By the way, it wasn't anybody here. Uh, and I just said, I don't. I have no idea. I can't read minds. I don't know people's hearts. That's God's job. Hey, Jesus had Judas among his midst, right? Judas was a devil. I just, Scripture says, you, you got a profession of faith, you believe, you get baptized. It's really that simple. So, you get baptized immediately. Oh, by the way, we're having a baptism on November 3rd here at GBF. And all are welcome. If you're a Christian and you've never been baptized by getting dunked after believing, join us, we'll dunk you. Uh, infants are never baptized in the Bible. Baptisms were never done in a church building. I already said that. Always done in water. Baptism is not a matter of efficacy, but a matter of obedience. We get baptized in the name of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ. Who baptizes you is not primary or of any significance, really. Uh, biblical baptism is never sprinkling in the Bible. Uh, there is no age requirement for baptism. I've had that question a lot. How old do they have to be? Well, they have to be old enough to understand the meaning of the gospel. And have they applied it to their life? And have they truly believed? And do they understand the meaning of baptism? That it's a symbol, an outward symbol of an inner reality that's already happened. So it's case by case and you've got to talk to that little kid if he's five years old. I know, I did, by the way, uh, when I first got out of seminary, I was trained and taught that you don't baptize anybody under the age of 12. And I held to it for like 10 years. And then I started meeting Christians who were like 50, 60, 70 years old and I hear their testimony and they're given this crystal clear testimony like they got saved yesterday but they got saved when they were... I remember the first lady who was 70 in one of my Bible classes. She said she got saved when she was four years old. And I would say, no, you didn't. That's impossible. But I didn't say that because she was 70 years old. <laughs> and I knew she was a believer and a lovely lady and I heard her testimony and that kind of just began... That changed me forever. I was like, wow, Really? You were saved when you were... I can't... Whoa, I wouldn't ensure you... That messes up my theology. I need to go back to seminary, lady. What are you... Anyway, that's just a struggle I have. But since then, I've had a lot of other testimonies like that. So there's no age requirement. Is Do they understand the gospel? Can they articulate it? Dunk them. Um, and with that, to God be the glory. Let's go ahead and pray and commit our time to the Lord and thank Him for our time in the Word. Father, we do thank You for the opportunity to look to Your Word and be reminded of these inspired words from the Apostle Paul that You've preserved for us so graciously for 2,000 years. God, help GBF not to be a divisive church. Help GBF people not to be prone to schisms and quarreling and divisive, suspicious, negative, unloving attitudes towards one another. God, we need Your help. We need the truth of the Word washing and cleansing us routinely. We need Your Holy Spirit warming over our hearts, clearing our minds, being reminded continually of the main thing, and that is the preeminence of our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord Jesus. We give you all the praise. We pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.